every time they do a survey about why people travel, it's to eat. It's always a big part of your travel experience. Enjoying the cuisine. Food is culture. Cuisine is pride. Eating is integral to a fine vacation. And we're talking a European vacation right now. And time and time again, I've learned that you don't need to be rich to enjoy eating your way across Europe. I'm joined by two gourmets, two guides, two people who really know how to eat well in Europe, Jamie Blair Gould and Nina Derricks. And uh, Nina is uh, Flemish-Belgian. Jamie's from uh, Britain, but he's living in Italy right now. Nina and Jamie, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. Jamie, if I say food is culture and cuisine is pride, how does that resonate with you? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's probably correct. I've never heard that expression, but I you think just made I, it up. oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. No, um, I, I, I understand that. I mean, um, sometimes I think, particularly in Britain, we just eat to live. Right. Whereas um, cuisine has uh, uh, other elements: passion, history, tradition, all sorts of other aspects to it. Yeah, and Nina, when when you think of regional pride, how does that tie in with the uh, cuisine? Um, when I think of my own country and of my own region, Flanders, we come from a farmer's background. The products that are being used in your cuisine have first of all been selected in the local shops. They're often farmer's products. It's very important to judge your ingredients from the beginning and then get the best out of them in your cuisine. It really reflects a mentality, I would say. So how does uh, ingredients work into Flemish cuisine and, and culture? How does that all tie together? And by the way, Flanders would be the the uh, northern part of Belgium, basically. It's the northern part of so Belgium. Belgium is uh, bilingual. Right. The southern Walloons speak French. The northern people in Belgium speak uh, Flemish, and you are Flemish from That's Flanders. That's right. And then, of course, not to forget, we have an, a German community in the east. And in Brussels, it's all mixed up. It's all mixed up, and I think the first language there is English now. But when you go to Brussels, people love food. I mean, you can eat very well in Brussels. Absolutely. In Belgium, we say that we have French-based cuisine and German portions so, best of both worlds, but it takes twice as long to digest. Heavy food. That's right. Now, when you think of regional uh, ingredients and the history and the culture tying together, give me an actual example of that in Flanders. Um, for instance, we eat a lot of hare in um, hair? Belgium. Yes. Um, you mean what do you rabbit? call it in American? Um, rabbit and hare made in uh, stews, which refers back to the farmer's background again. So in, in the Middle Ages, if they need a little bit of uh, meat, they'd catch a rabbit on the edge of the farm? Yes, that too. And also our local farmers, for instance, I grew up on a local uh, little holding, and uh, my father, we had all pet rabbits. And for us, it was very clear that we would eat those rabbits at the end of the day. Oh, that's very frightening. You're a little child, and you get to be friends with a rabbit, and then someday soon, it'll be on your dinner table. Uh, we never saw it that way. We just knew this was food, and for a while, it's there, and you can cuddle it, but you eat it. I met a woman who uh, has a, a farm in the Dordogne. It was a goose farm, and they were force-feeding their geese. And uh, all these geese, they grow up quite quickly. Jamie, do you know, can you explain to us the process of the gavage? Uh, well, um, not exactly, no. So, Jamie, you're reluctant to answer that because it's it's considered barbaric to force feed and slaughter the geese, or well, no, it's it's a contentious issue. I think, uh, particularly mm. today, there are those that uh, feel that it's quite a cruel process. Um, I have to say, it's I kind of fudge the issue. I don't go out and buy it, but if I'm served it, I eat it. Do you enjoy it? Oh yes. And you don't have to go to um, confession afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I should do. You should. Yeah. Let me um, be bold enough to alienate a few. Uh, geese lovers and talk about the gavage. Because foie gras is a beautiful thing. Do you have foie gras in Belgium? 
Um, no, we don't. It's a very French thing. It's a very French thing. To the French, and a lot of English go down to the Dordogne for their foie gras. Dordogneshire, yes. Dordogneshire. It's, I mean, it's just invaded by English people, and they got one thing on their mind when they get down to that beautiful part of southern France. Probably two things, foie gras and wine. Foie gras and wine. It's a nice marriage. Beautiful together. When I leave Dordogne, I need foie gras detox. <laughs> now, just let me give you the case, because I, I went there as sort of an investigative reporter, um, uh, because I know in Chicago for a while, foie gras was uh, not allowed to be served. I mean, it was, it was just considered so barbaric. But the French goose farmer thinks differently about this. I visited this farm outside of Sarlat that welcomes travelers in to go to the farm and see the geese. And this woman there explained to me that the geese are very carefully taken care of. The geese uh, are force-fed the corn several times a day, and uh, their livers are basically a quarter of a pound, and then after they've gone through this force-feeding, they become to be about one kilo or uh, two pounds, two point two and a quarter pounds, and then they're slaughtered. And the French love to eat this uh, big goose liver. Uh, the historic story, way back when, in the Middle Ages... French would catch these geese that had gorged themselves to grow their livers so they could make the migratory flight all the way down to Egypt. And they found these geese, and they ate the livers, and they said, this is beautiful. And they thought, why don't we save the geese the trip to Egypt, and we'll just uh, grow them here on the farm, feed them until their livers get fat, and we'll slaughter them and and make it part of our our cuisine. Uh, To this day, they've been uh, farming geese and force-feeding them. This friend of mine on the farm said the best foie gras is from the geese that have peaceful lives that are, are well cared for. They're outdoors a lot and so on. It's a pretty quick process when they, they go through the force feeding. And then like any other uh, animal in the food chain below us, they ultimately get slaughtered and ended up on the table. The reason I thought about this, because Nina was talking about having uh, rabbits uh, as pets. And then one day the children's pet is on the table and it's dinner and it's part of the process. And in Europe, I just think people are close to the ground. They realize we've done this for ages. This is part of our our culture. And in France, maybe not in Belgium, but in France, the foie gras is a big deal. And in Flanders, you eat your pet rabbits. And we also eat our pigeons who are used in pigeon racing. And if they're not champions, they get put in the pot. We Ah. make soup out of our losers. So there's an incentive for pigeons to be good champions. Absolutely. My goodness. Now, when I'm running around Europe trying to find uh, good places. I work hard to find good restaurants, and I'm realizing there's a change in the way people find restaurants, and there's these applications on iPhones and so on. Uh, you know, in the United States, we have Urban Spoon and Yelp and this sort of thing. In Europe, is there a similar kind of application that people would have on their on their mobile devices where they can get other people's recommendations of restaurants as they travel? As far as iPods, I'm not aware, but I'm not uh, a technical champion. But uh, certainly in terms of the Internet, there are definitely uh, recommendations. So what's a good source on the Internet if people are wondering, what should I eat when I'm in uh, Amsterdam or Paris or Lyon? Uh, so, I mean, I just Google it uh, and I do recommendations and then it would come up and then you could just uh, hit, hit the one that you wanted to. Traditionally, it's been uh, a lot of people are really into the Michelin guides, the yes. Michelin red guide. Yes. And I know the Michelin green guide because it's really good for sightseeing and history and art. But gourmets who travel around Europe love this Michelin red guide. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's a, it's a particular type of food. And I think if you like the Michelin experience, then um, the guides, of course, are the way to go. But um, I think you have to see it in a, another light. It's not just about people often complain about tiny portions and the over-elaboration. But I think the value of it isn't just in the food, it's the entire show. That's a good way to put it, because if you're just looking for a lot of good food, you're not going to get it at a three-star Michelin well, restaurant. Well, I wouldn't say you're not going to get it, but it's um, it's very expensive and not very much. 
but uh, it is a, a, on a special occasion. It's the entire show, the service, the decor, the ambience, um, and it, it really is a special thing. And the and, presentation. And the presentation, of course, is uh, tremendously important. So if you're going to spend uh, 100 euros on a Michelin star meal, Nina, you're going to appreciate more than just the taste of that salad or the taste of that soup. It's the whole ambiance of it, definitely, the whole show. I know that chefs will almost commit suicide if they lose one of their treasured stars. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have to work tremendously hard to get one of these stars, and it's um, a terrible thing if you lose it. I mean, uh, you, you've really got to be enormously dedicated to get them. Is there a lot of credibility, or is there any sort of corruption that people um, diminish the importance of these Michelin stars? Is it genuine or, or have been corrupt? Oh, I believe it's genuine, yes. So it really is the ultimate. When you have a restaurant with a Michelin star, if you want to dress up and have the whole performance of the meal, if you got the money, it's worth the experience. If you enjoy that, yes. I mean, me personally, I enjoy it every now and then, but uh, I rather like the country-style food and the, the hearty portions. But um, for a special occasion, it is a quite an incredible thing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about eating well in Europe, and I'm joined by Jamie Blair-Gould from England and Nina Derricks from Flanders in the north of Belgium. You know, one thing when I'm traveling around Europe, I'm constantly reminded of the history of the food that I encounter. And there's a lot of poverty in the past, and it's kept alive in the cuisine. A lot of hardship in your cultures. Is there anything that comes to mind when you think of food that's fed to young people so they'll remember the the hardship of their grandparents? Yes, absolutely. I can think, for instance, of Belgian endive. Endive, I think you say, Belgian witloof. Here it's promoted as with love from Belgium. The leaves of that vegetable... And and endive, we would say. Endive, yes. They were thrown away in compost heaps. Uh, They were just rubbish. And uh, in the war, people really looked for anything edible still through compost heaps. They found the roots of these vegetables buried underneath, started eating them, and thought those leaves that sprang up from those roots, which formed the light bulb, were highly edible. Now... That poor food has become a delicacy all over the world. And as I said, it's exported as with love from Belgium. With love. Reminding uh, of the time when people had to scavenge just not to starve. Absolutely. I mean, all across Europe. Well, in Italy, um, ribolita. Well, ribolita means reboiled, literally. And it's a soup and you cook it twice, but it's using up. um, I mean, it's poor food. I mean, so much of the great delicacies we have today is is, uh, food that people ate out of necessities. And uh, Ribolita is definitely one of those. In Trastevere, you go out to the uh, near the slaughterhouses, and there's restaurants that are specialties and all the little bits of the meat that wouldn't be sold in the market. Exactly, just like the uh, bouillabaisse started off. Uh, what you call bouillabaisse in the States is a very luxurious dish, but the original one in Marseille is made out of uh, uh, tiny little fish that weren't sold in the markets. They're rockfish. They cook it with potatoes and uh, saffron, and uh, it was a poor people's food, and today it's become highly luxurious. A good thing to know when you're traveling through Europe. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating our way through Europe with Jamie Blair Gould and Nina Derricks. When I travel in Europe, a lot of times I'm with people that just don't want to touch something because it's gross. There's a fish with a head on it or something like this. Mm. Or, and I like to go to the little bars in Europe all over Europe and eat ugly things on toothpicks and wash it down with local wine. Wonderful little hors d'oeuvres. I was just in Estonia, and they were selling pig's ears, crunchy fried pig's ears. And it was wonderful. It was the best thing I ate in Estonia. They told me a lot of people in Estonia, they don't emigrate abroad because they can't bear to live without their rustic bread. It's like cake. It's so good, the bread in Estonia. When you're traveling around Europe, Nina, do you find that there's some sort of uh, foods that might initially seem a little gross or, or put you off, but that you really have to try and at least to give a whirl? 
I would say I'm not a big pate fan, but I always give it a go and you actually come across wonderful textures and blends. I would say give pate a go. I like that because all over Europe you can find local pates and visually they're not always the exactly. most appealing. But you're, you say you recognize different textures. Yes, different textures, different combinations of flavors with berries that you cannot imagine. That, yes, I think is definitely worth it. A pate. Yes, pate and cheeses, etc. as well. Jamie. Oh, I have lots of gross ones, which I like. Tell me your favorite uh, oh, gross Oh, two, two I've got to think of in France straight away. Uh, the eau au moët, which is uh, poached eggs in a red wine sauce. Um, most people think it looks gross because you make this concentrated red wine sauce with the little pearl onions and the mushrooms and the lard on the, the bacon bits. Concentrated, which is like beef bourguignons and uh, moët sauce. And then you poach them eggs and then you crack the eggs in there and uh, all the gooey yellow yolk oozes into the red sauce. And most people think, oh, that's gross, but I tell you, that's the best breakfast you can think of. Mm -hmm. But um, perhaps even more gross would be um, for Christmas specialty in Rome is the Testa di Abacchio, which is literally a baby sheep's head. It's um, particular at Christmas time, and they actually split the head, uh, they cleave it uh, r right through the middle of it, and so you get half a head smiling at you with the... Uh, so half a nose. I need to half a nose, some. half a brain. <laughs> um, you, you literally, um, you, you scoop a little of the brain out, you pull the jaw apart, eat the uh, the meat, and then the uh, the pièce de résistance is the eyeball, which actually tastes like a, a sweet roasted onion. You've eaten a baby lamb's eyeball on Christmas? I certainly have, and, uh, and it, it grossed, like a it grossed me out, but um, it was a, a boyo thing where you were uh, challenged to eat it, and uh, I have to say it was really pretty delicious. Nina, is there anything in uh, the Low Countries that would rival that in grossness? I don't think so. That is, I think Jamie's gross level is lower than mine. <laughs> what about haggis? Haggis, that's a good thing. Haggis, um, uh, I mean, haggis is... Uh, Nobody up there will tell you what they put in it. Well, you, this is the Scottish sort of <laughs> traditional uh, soft meat, right? Well, again, it's used, it's um, poor, poor folks' um, food. Um, historically, it was a way of preserving. I mean, all sausages are skin, but instead of using the, the gut here, they actually use the stomach. You don't eat it. It's just the casing of it. But it's all those bits of the, uh, the sheep, uh, including the uh, what we call offal, I think you call organ meat, um, various offcuts of it, and it's all cooked together with uh, oats. And some and, spices? Um, very little onion, and uh, today they may put a bit of garlic. Some people try right. and spice it up, but quite honestly, it's that wonderful flavor of the oats uh, mixed ah, okay. with this, and then it's uh, boiled up and uh, usually eaten on Bern's night and uh, cut with a ski and do the little knife in the cross of St. Andrews, and then you pour a wee dram on the top and eat it with uh, neeps and tatties, the yellow Scottish uh, turnips and uh, mashed potato. Yeah. So that would really, the, the poor Scottish food from ages past and today, celebrated with much fanfare. And um, Robbie Burns even has, a, when they're, they're piped into the table, and uh, Robbie Burns even wrote a poem, an ode to the haggis, and it, all I remember is the last line which says, Great chieftain o' the puddin' race. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're eating our way through Europe with Jamie Blair Gould and Nina Derricks, and our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Garrett's on the phone in Chicago. Garrett, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick. Uh, I just have a question in general. I'm just curious about, um, like, breakfast in Germany. How come it's so hearty and there's so much variety to it compared to the usual bread or Danish and coffee that you get in Italy, France, and Spain? 
you know, when I visit Germany, I'm just astounded at the huge breakfast spreads and the bed and breakfast, you know, that you could hardly find in Italy or France. Well, we'll let Nina answer that because she comes from a Germanic country uh, just across the border in, in Flanders. I also um, lived and worked in Germany for two and a half years, and I always, I have to say, looked forward to these hearty breakfasts. There are so many beautiful bread rolls with seeds, etc., which I don't get in Italy. And I think it's because we are a northern country. The climate is not as warm. You need to set yourself up with a hearty breakfast for the rest of the day. And then you can go out and cope with the rest of the day. Whereas in Italy, the climate is much warmer. You just make an easy start throughout the day. The sun gets hotter and hotter, so you need to have a siesta. And then you can linger over a longer lunch. You don't need to have a hearty breakfast. You want to get working straight away. I think it's probably also a, a rural factor as well. I mean, you're going and working in the fields all day and there isn't much time to take off. And so you want to uh, fill up on a, a big... Well, like the American or British breakfast well, it's the, as well. it's the rationale for the English fry. Exactly. I mean, you've got to get those calories in and then you can go out and work in the fields. Also remember in the Mediterranean, because they've had a siesta, they're having dinner as late as 10 o'clock or later. And then uh, in Italy, you, you felt like you just had dinner in the morning. So you just really grab a, a cup of coffee and a roll on the run to your work, and then you're going to go home and have the big meal of your day is your lunch. And my experience in Italy was also that the Italians are famous for sleeping in, and uh, they want to get up at the last possible moment and uh, and just grab it on the way, and then they're not going to waste the time to cook it. And you see that in the cafes all over yes. the big cities of Italy. And then you have to think also, I mean, they, they usually have other things like, uh, you might not know that uh, tiramisu, uh, the, the classic dessert, of course, is uh, Venetian, and it literally means pick-me-up. Um, the Italians have to come out later in the day, in the, whether it's the morning or the afternoon, and they need a pick-me-up because they've only had I didn't know that. Tiramisu, that's a T- good phrase Tiramisu. Oh, pick-me-up. Now, oh. Nina talked about the bread with all the grain and the nuts and the full corn. Seeds in the there. seeds and so on. That was the same thing I was thinking about because when you're in Germany, you get a basket of this wonderful bread, and it's always fresh. I've had hoteliers that wouldn't serve breakfast on, I think, one morning of the week the bakery opened late or something, so they had to delay their breakfast until they got the fresh bread there. They really are passionate about that. Oh, yes, absolutely, yes. And, of course, we have a lot of dairy produce, too, in the low countries, also in Germany. Our breakfast is full of yogurts and cheeses, etc., which we don't get at all in Italy. I must mention, in the old days, you would likely find just a croissant and a coffee with some hot milk in France or something, and less than that in Spain and Italy. And now, all over Europe, for a traveler anyways, you get a pretty hearty breakfast served to you in the hotels. Thank you very much, Rick. I guess my ideal day would be breakfast in Germany, lunch in France, and (laughs) dinner in Italy. (laughs) That sounds pretty darn good to me. I'd go for the breakfast in Germany, I think, too. Thank you for your call, Garrett. Thank you very much, Rick. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're dreaming about food in Europe with Jamie Blair Gould and Nina Derricks. I just love to think of edible highlights of my travels. When I'm in Basque Country, the spider crab is just, like, incredible. I don't know if you guys have been to Basque Country. Oh, I know. I've done a lot. Oh, the tapas there? Oh, yeah, the, or the San pinchos, Sebastian. as they call the pinchos, them. Right. Pinchos in uh, San Sebastian as well. Oh, I mean, to me, uh, the Basque Country is one of the great eating experiences. Uh, outside of Paris, there are more Michelin stars in San Sebastian than any other part. And uh, the Basques, uh, I find, are remarkable people anyway. They're, they're trenchermen, as we say, in, in my country. Uh, there are no meals. The day is a continuous meal. And each of the bars is just heaving with these wonderful pinchos, tapas, as we know them. So fresh, so wonderful. The tradition, of course, is that you just go from one bar to another. You have uh, one pinchos, uh, one widram of something, and then you head on to the next one. And that's the hardest part because uh, there's so much that you want to eat, but you've got to get on to the next bar. It's funny you say that, Jamie, because I was just researching in San Sebastian and 
of all the cities in Europe, I don't think I've ever put as much importance in actual pub crawl, or, or what you'd call it, going from one little bar to the next, eating these pinchos. I say, you've got to be disciplined. Just one here, because you want to have the whole experience. And it's hard. You can easily settle in. Oh, and it's a culture. I mean, uh, you talk to any hardy Basque, and they'll, they'll tell you all about it. I mean, that is the best way, is to talk to the locals about it and find out how to do it. Okay, it, when, I, when I think about that, the spider crab just comes to mind. I forget the name, but it's just a delicacy. When you're thinking Basque cuisine, what ingredient do you go for normally? Oh, uh, well, well, certainly. I mean, there are so many, but yeah. uh, the spider crab is certainly one of those which is uh, delicious, for sure. If I'm thinking about Germany, I think about sauerkraut. Growing up here in the United States all my life, I thought sauerkraut was just pretty forgettable. You get to Germany, especially, I think, Bavaria, it's a whole different experience. Mary in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, emails us, and she says that this is the best way to see Europe. Don't be afraid to eat what the locals are eating. Highly recommended are the imbus stands in Germany for the best bratwurst and the pomfrites. <laughs> she just loves the pomfrites in Germany. You know, I like the pomfrites in Germany, but really the best pomfrites have got to be in Flanders. Nina, that's your homeland. Tell us about the, the passion for French fries that you have there in the north part of Belgium. It's street food. That's um, how it became so popular, I think. And um, French fries, uh, to French um, fries means to cut them up in slivers. That's where the name comes from. But they are Flemish fries. Oh, to French is to cut in slivers? Cut them up in slivers. That's so you, right. You could French uh, a carrot? You can, exactly. It refers to the shape in slivers, So you basically. could have a French apple. You could, yes. Okay, so these exactly. are fried French potatoes. And then I think when I'm in the Netherlands, they call them uh, Fla- Flanders, what is the... Lamsefrietjes. Lamsefrietjes. And these would be Flemish fries. Flemish fries, they are. So we call them French fries. They call them Flemish fries. That's it. But the people in Flanders really are quite proud about the way that they cook their fries. How do you cook a good Flemsefrite in Flanders? Essentially, it's got to be a good potato to start with, which is the same everywhere. But uh, also, the the key ingredient is they're twice cooked. So when you go to the fritkot, as they call them in Flanders, you will see the potatoes already cooked on the side. And then they put them in the, the frying net again and double fry them. And what this does, is it, it makes them puff up. And this is the really the, the special factor. They are puffy compared to what I'm used to in a fast food place in the States. And you don't necessarily dip it in ketchup. No, absolutely not. The big one in um, Flanders is mayonnaise. And I think that's the first recipe I learned to make at home is how do you make a mayonnaise? How do you make mayonnaise? Um, with tons of oil. It's 90-90% oil. But basically you put one egg in a bowl, you put some mustard in, some salt, and then you just keep adding um, oil in very, very thin stream. But 99% of it is oil. And you mix it up. And you mix it up with a food processor. Wow. So now that really is what would distinguish great fries is probably great mayonnaise. For me, I'm a Brit, and, uh, you know, as much as I love my Italian cuisine and French cuisine, uh, there's only one thing to put on fries, sarsen's vinegar. Sarsen's vinegar? Yeah, it's malt vinegar. Malt vinegar? Yeah. And that is an adjustment for Americans. You go to a fish and chips place in uh, Britain, and you're going to get vinegar. Malt vinegar on it, yes. And that's the way to go with lots of salt. Yeah, I I think for me, um, mayonnaise on uh, frites is like putting fat on fat. (laughs) Whereas when you put uh, vinegar on it, it kind of cuts the fat. So that's what uh, makes it special. And I would say I absolutely agree with that. There's only one way to have Flemish fries. It's with malt vinegar. But good ideas travel really slowly sometimes. 
That's a big leap for a Flemish person to acknowledge that the British-style malt vinegar on the fries is the best way to do it. Very dangerous, I would think. Yes. When we think about Britain, Britain is making great strides in respect to its cuisine, even beyond the French fries. Yeah, I would say, um, I, I think Britain's always had tremendous ingredients. And I think there just isn't this culture, living in France and uh, now in Italy, I think that the regional recipes are handed on from uh, mother to daughter and son to whatever. But in England, the ingredients have always been very good, but there just isn't this tradition of passing on the recipes. But if they have their ingredients that are good, they cook them and cook them and cook them until the peas are mushy. Well, the, the, the mushy peas is a, a, a specific thing. It isn't actually a regular pea. It's a particular type of pea called a marrow pea, which is much more starchy. It's really quite delicious. These mushy peas actually become a, more like a porridge. Okay. And uh, it's the thing to have with your um, fish and chips. People I'm brag about it. You see shops all over uh, Blackpool Absolutely. bragging about their mushy peas. mushy peas. But you go into the pubs, and pub grub used to be notoriously forgettable, and now they take great pride in their crispy uh, vegetables and, and wonderful dishes in the pub. And it's a lot of times associated with the restaurant, which would be quite expensive, and you eat in the pub, and it's remarkably affordable. A lot of the pubs seem to be doing a lot of continental food, but for me, I like it when the British stick to what they do best, but just cook it well. For me, the best thing out is like a steak and kidney pie. And if you don't like the kidneys, which I do, then just have the steak and ale pie or the steak and mushroom pie, chicken, turkey and ham pie. Oh. But um, And I like a shepherd's pie. A shepherd's pie or cottage pie, and the difference there is that shepherd's pie is made with ground lamb, rather, and a cottage pie is made with ground beef. Jamie and Nino, I'm really big into trying to share the culture and the history and the art with people, and I use as a rack to hang these ideas, buildings and sites and tangible things. But if you know the cuisine, you can also hang the culture and understanding of the culture on the cuisine. Oh, I think it's very much so. I think um, you have to understand, and this is what I've learned living in Italy, is that uh, it's part of the tradition. The Italians, for instance, will not just drive out to where they know a good winery to buy wine, but they'll also grow out to a place where they grow rice or um, other produce, and it's, it's, it's just very much part of the tradition. Anywhere in Europe you can go, you can stumble onto forgettable food or you can hit the specialties. I think you should have, as part of your ethic as a traveler, a determination to try the specialties. They can be serious cuisine or they could simply be the macaroons on the Champs-Élysées. Absolutely, and, and pretty much every town has a specialty, so um, it's let's, just a question of doing a little research. Let's list specialties. Uh, Barnacles, persebish in Lisbon, in Portugal. Well, those are quite incredible things. I mean, what you have to remember there is that a lot of people lose their lives fishing for these things. They actually have to climb down in Galicia, where I've had them. They've actually had to climb down over the cliffs, which is extraordinarily dangerous to pick these things off the rocks at the bottom with the waves crashing in. Enormously dangerous. So Consequently, um, quite expensive. Uh, consequently, very expensive. And frugal as I may be, I splurge for the persebish, the barnacles, when I'm in Galicia and in Portugal. And they're delicious. Quite ugly, but delicious. You can get them in a market and actually have people cook them up right there in, in little cafeterias in the market for you, fresh off of the stalls. And that's when they're so nice. I mean, it's, it's eating in situ right there. Freshly steamed barnacles with a nice local beer. That's good living. Well, we could talk forever about the food of Europe with Jamie and uh, Nina, but uh, we're going to wrap this up. And I'd like to leave people with just one beautiful European flavor in their mouth. Nina, if you were to share one special taste treat... Take us there. I'll take you straight into one of the cafes in Antwerp, where I'd sit down in front of a plate of mussels. They count on one kilo per person, and you ate your way through mussels, preferably in the months with an R, when the mussels are best. 
the month's uh, having an R with an oh, R. If in, the month has the letter R in it, then the seafood is best traditionally. Then the seafood is best, and you'd go for the mussels in a cafe in Antwerp. That's right. Yes, wow. with Flamsefrietjes, Flemish um, chips, and mayonnaise. And there's many ways to have your mussels. What what is the standard way? The standard way, um, I would say, like this in a cafe, or you can also just make. Um, but, but the name on the menu. I mean, you got a la Provence, you got uh, a la Thailand. Uh, you know, there's different ways to, that they serve the mussels. Mussel met Vlaamse frieten. There you go, Jamie. Oh, I think um, it's hard to get away living in Italy from porcini mushrooms. I mean, when they're in season and they're right, they're fantastic. Um, spring, fall, when they come out, uh, a little bit of rain, they come up. Uh, you have to hunt from them, which adds a little cachet to the whole thing. You bring them in fresh, slice them up quite thickly, and then just put them in the pan in a little bit of olive oil until they go slightly crispy on the outside, but stay soft in the middle. A little bit of parsley, bit of garlic in the pan, and just eat them that way, or or with a little fresh tagliatelle, or um, in a risotto. My goodness, I would love it if both of you would wish me bon appetit in Italian and in Flemish. Nina? It's makkelijk. Jamie? Bon appetito. Mille grazie. Danke wel. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.